A big welcome to our More Foundation podventure. This is our space where we will hear the life stories, insights and wisdom from members of our thriving community. You will get the opportunity to learn from their life experience and hear the moments in life that have helped shape them. Mo is a growing global community of change makers and builders. We provide lifelong learning support to our community, enabling them to make a positive change and impact in our world. To find out more about Mo Foundation, please visit our website www.mofoundation.com or find us on social media. We look forward to connecting and learning about you. In the meantime, enjoy the latest podventure. Welcome to the Mo or Mo Foundation podcast. My name's Darren Robson and uh, I'm really pleased today that I've got the wonderful Simon Hample. So Simon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Darren. Nice to be here. I can even so, see you, Darren. It's amazing. You and he. <laughs> yeah, no, no one else will be able to see us. It's just the audio this picks up on. I did consider doing a video-based one, but I'm just not ready for that. <laughs> I like to li- look very disheveled. handsome today. <laughs> likewise, uh, likewise. So, Simon, you know, one of the things I want to do with this podcast is I really want to capture some of the essence and life story of the people that are part of Mo and that are. Uh, in the kind of wider orbit of Mo, and, and you're a person that's been there from the very, very beginning at the very genesis of it. And as we go through this conversation, you know, I'm sure I'll drop in different parts of of how you've influenced me and how you've influenced Mo, some of which you're probably aware of and other bits you're not. Um, so I'm really looking forward to capturing that. But one, I wanted to start, I wanted to first off say, I think I have to be really thankful to David Carter because it's the only reason I met you is because I met David Carter and then he invited me to his house one day and he said, oh, you should meet Simon. And that that's when we first met, which I don't know how many years ago that was now, maybe 10 years ago. It must have been at somewhere least, around there. At least 10, at least 10. Yeah. yeah, because I think at that time you just returned from being CEO of Right to Sight. Is that right? Oh, yeah. So I came back in the summer of 2010. Yeah, so it must be 2010. There yeah. you go. That gives us that gives us a bit of a, a, a sort of a gauge. But Simon, uh, before we we kind of get into that and where you know where our relationship has developed and, and how you've supported and influenced Mo in the ways that you have, I'd love you to kind of share some of your story because what I love about your story is, <clears throat> you know, the the kind of classic educational backgrounds that you've had and then the kind of serial entrepreneur space you went into and then you went into the whole world of contribution and charity so let's let's start with who is Simon Hample and where did you grow up and let's let's start from there and then we'll flow into your entrepreneurial and uh, your kind of contribution journey lovely love to Dan. thank you so born in London actually not often these days you can someone say I actually was born in London and I'm, I'm living here 52 years later so I'm 52 um, and Darren, you know, I'm an old dad now, as you know, I've got a three and a half year old and a one year old, which is rather amazing. So that's a hell of a journey, keeping me young. But no, born in London 52 years ago, um, and then lived in, mum and dad moved out to a place called Denham, which you may know, just outside London, sort of halfway between London and Oxford, due west, uh, and moved there in 1970. Uh, and that's been our family home ever since, rather amazingly. So very very safe, loving, trusting, um, very normal, really. We, we didn't, we wouldn't have, we weren't awash with money. I, I never went over Sydney, went abroad until I was 18. All the family holidays were in Cornwall and Scotland and Wales. Um, and it was just a, a couple of brothers and a sister. 
Um, Dad was very academic. He's very, very, very intellectually able man. wasn't necessarily that good with money. Just it wasn't. He wasn't interested in it, and I think struggled to make it. And so that was. Mum's very pragmatic and an amazing doer and a sort of holder of things. Um, uh, and so it was just, it was a little bit like they were very supportive of us as young people, always there. So I felt very held. I, I had a very quiet childhood in that I don't have hugely dramatic memories of it other than being quite loving and supportive. So I think that's, and I think that's very lucky. Um, I, I count myself fortunate on that front. Um, and then, you know, aged 18, left home as I left school and went off to university to read history. Um, and I must say, it was in so doing, it was very much my path. It wasn't that I was ever asked to leave home, but mum and dad were very encouraging to, to move beyond the house rather than stay with the umbilical cord too close. So I was quite independent, quite young. But a couple of years into university, I went down to Exeter um, University I um I just got a feeling that this path wasn't right for me, Darren. And it was it was quite a strange thing because things are being laid out for me. I could, you know, I could see all my friends going off on interviews at the, in the end of our second year, beginning of our third year for for jobs back in London and, and I just I didn't feel comfortable. It was like a path I didn't want to tread. It felt too narrow. And so I left, which was quite a challenge. And it wasn't what my family and friends expected. In fact, they all got very angry with me and I was accused of being an arrogant young man and I was told I was making a dreadful mistake and without a university degree, you know, I would be, I would achieve nothing. And, and probably in hindsight, they were right that I didn't go about it in a very uh, mature way. I didn't have the maturity to know how to go about it. I just, I just left. <laughs> um, and for a year, I just, I just worked, you know, I, I sort of worked on the streets of London, finding jobs wherever I could and, and sort of bumming sofas and people's spare rooms. And, um, you know, it was really hard actually. And, and, uh, I was sort of cut off and it was not that I had, not that I was being given money, but I just wasn't, I wasn't encouraged to be particularly present with people. And they were, I think all hoping I'd come back and sort of apologize for my mistake and say, um, you're right. I should go back to university. No, I didn't. And, uh, I was just lucky, mate. A door opened and, a, and in fact, a, a lovely, I, I, I got a great girlfriend and her dad said to me, you know, you should go back to university. And I went, no, not you too. And he goes, well, you should, in which case, get your hair cut. Uh, and, you know, and, he's, and he knew a few people doing some quite interesting work in leisure. And so he just, he, he made some introductions for me. Funny how life is, isn't it? And one of them said, look, we'd like you to come and work for us. So I got a job. And and within a year and a half, I was I'd learned so much. I became the PA to a board of rather amazing entrepreneurs building upmarket leisure around the UK. So nice health and fitness clubs and leisure clubs and golf clubs and and the like. And I just learned everything about the development of these, from how you finance them to how you build them to how you market them to how you manage them. And I came up with an idea about how to how to try and help them grow the business and they said to me that's a really good idea but we don't think we want to do that because it's a little bit left field it was a brokerage company trading in these types of things they said why don't you do it I said I'm 23 I, I don't know what I'm talking about I said I don't know how to be a broker and they said well like, we're going to give you a little bit of money and we'll give you some professional advisors off you go so I started Makata when I was 23 I think we turned over about a million pounds in the first year Darren 
and it all went rather well. And uh, I was like, oh, <laughs> I can do this. This is what it means to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> and really, for the next eight or nine years, you know, most of what I touched seemed to go very well. I, 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 I built a number of businesses alongside the brokerage. I built a management consultancy and I built a sports marketing and events business. I've got a lovely chap called Gary Player. You may have heard of him. Golfer, he came and I looked after Gary. So that was rather fabulous to have a, a man of that size and stature. Uh, and I also opened up a technology business and we had offices in London, New York, Vancouver, Sydney, Monaco. You know, I used to turn left on a plane. So it was a very different life to what I had when I was 14 or 15. I was traveling the whole time uh, and I was experiencing and loving it. Uh, and I enjoyed growing things. I was good at finding good people and empowering them to do their job and helping them shine and growing. I didn't have a sense of purpose at that stage, really. I didn't know what I was, why I was doing it, apart from growing it. I mean, of course, financially, it was rewarding, and I did well from it. But it wasn't that wasn't why I was doing it. I didn't have the sort of yearning for money. Um, just came with the success. And then Darren, two thousand and one happened for me happened 2000 was a dot-com crash for those of you who remember back that far and 2001 a lot of the uh software companies that were using the internet as a delivery system um dropped in valuation by about 90 percent called asps application service providers of which i was one in my technology business and we were quite big and all my partners all my venture capital supporters bailed and i lost everything i had because i the smaller businesses, I had to sort of keep channeling money up into the big one to keep it going, and I just couldn't do it. And it was ghastly, actually. Uh, I felt awful, and I didn't know what to do. I had to confront that first. I mean, failure is a strong word, but I had to confront the the challenge of losing everything and my own sense of self worth. And I just, I didn't want to stay in London. I, I realised I could stay because people were being very generous and saying, what, do I need help and, and financial support? Or I just wanted to go. So I went, thought I'd go to Spain. I went to Madrid. I'd never been to Spain. I'd been everywhere in the world, but I hadn't been to Spain. I always I rather romantically imagined it'd be good to learn a language. And I thought, okay, I could go to Spain. I can find a job, basic job. I can learn some Spanish and I can just regroup. And it's, it's warm. I got to Madrid where I had various friends who were working there and I thought well, they, they, they'll look after me in some way they'll help me I didn't tell them I was coming I just arrived I was so, I was so traumatized by the failure of the business and by the way I'd gone around the world closing all the offices so that was, it was which felt like a really important thing to do to say thank you and appreciate the amazing work that people have given me albeit it kept layering on further pain because every time I turned out I just felt worse about it but I knew I had to do it it was the right thing to do anyway when I um got to Madrid I got mugged after three days and uh, just lost what was in my pocket it's like it's as if I was being invited to lose everything you know in the back the shirt off my back and I went to I phoned my best friend Justin and he said mate do you want some money do you want to come home and I said no I don't I don't want to come home I want to stay here but I'm not going to stay in Madrid I need to go somewhere else because all the people I went to see weren't there when I arrived they just somehow everyone was not there they on business trips or on a holiday just no one was there so I went to I went to the train station in the middle of Madrid and I sat there looking at all the names of the places the trains are going to and I thought well when I like the name I'm going to go there and as I was doing that this really lovely blonde girl walked up a platform 
And I thought, gosh, you look like an angel. You look so happy. So I stopped her. She's like, she thought it was very weird. And I said, excuse me, do you speak any English? Because I spoke, I spoke no Spanish at all. And she, she looked at me and said, yes, I'm German. And I laughed and went, well, you know, Germans speak amazing English. And she, and she smiled. And I said, um, can I just say you look so happy? Where, where have you come from? And she said, Sevilla. I said, oh, what's, what's that like? And she said, it's warm, beautiful, cheap and romantic. And then she left. And I've never seen her again. Whoever she was, I don't even know her name was, but an angel guided me to a train to Seville, which I went to. And within a day, Darren, I had a course in Spanish, a job, a place to stay. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. It all just opened up. And in fact, the place I learned Spanish in was called Carpe Diem, which is rather <laughs> <laughs> made it even more appropriate. Uh, and I, you know, I, I lived very humbly there working on tables and, you know, just doing whatever I could do to earn money. Um, and I earned in a year what I used to pay myself in a week, and I had an amazing year. It was a real life lesson around what's important, what money means, and also about trust, because I, I, I had to trust life. I had nothing else. I just had to engage with it. I could have, I could have hidden. I could have become smaller and, and stayed away, but I, I had to walk into life. It helps that Seville has 300 days of sun a year and it's got good beer and lots of dancing. So, you know, he, there's a spirit there that also helps to reconnect you into life. Um, and at the end of that, Darren, I, you know, all the air miles, I had millions of air miles because of all my traveling and I had no money. And I suddenly thought, gosh, I now speak pretty good Spanish because my Spanish friends I made there refused to speak English, which meant I had to speak Spanish. <laughs> Uh, and I think I often sounded like the policeman from a lower low. He says, well, have you ever run a lower low? I definitely was that bloke. Yeah. Anyway, um, I, I thought I want to go to South America. I've never been to South America. I've never been to sort of remote parts of the world. I've always been in cities. So one brother gave me a rucksack and another one gave me a tent and my sister gave me a sleeping bag. And that was it. I had that and I had my air miles and, you know, a few euros, but nothing really. And I crisscrossed South America for a year. Um, living by my wits and I suppose a sense of my leadership skills because I kept finding myself in places where I could I was a bit older you know at that stage I was 33 34 and so most of the travelers doing that route were in their early 20s and so I you know if I went into a bar I'd end up running it <laughs> just because I could do that which meant I got a bit more money and a bit more security you know and I often got a bed over the whatever it was you know it would sort of work and when I got to La Paz in Bolivia I was very and again synchronicities of life I was in a bar with a long beard and a cigarette in my mouth and a cold beer and long hair wondering what I would do tomorrow because I never quite knew what I'd do tomorrow mañana the Spanish say um, and I saw it in this bar it was in the back streets of La Paz there was a bloke English but I didn't know he was English but he looked very English he was an oldish chap with a blazer and tie on it's like what are you doing here it's like candid camera you can't be real and he was, he was standing at the counter trying to order a drink in English in quite a posh accent. It's like, no. So I got up and I, of course, got his drink for him in Spanish. And he said, do you speak English? And I said, yes. And he says he bought me a drink. So, of course, I naturally joined him because why would <laughs> Here was a bloke buying me a drink. Um, and after about three hours of conversation, he said, uh, I'm going off down the Amazon tomorrow on an expedition. Do you want to join me? And I was like, blimey. <laughs> 
are you for real? You know, I was a bit suspicious, actually. So even though I was trusting, that was like quite a thing. He said, tell you what, I've got a group of people coming to the airport tomorrow. A few people are coming with me. Why don't you turn up there? And if, you know, if you all like each other, you could join us. I thought, well, I got that's fine. So at 11 o'clock, I turned up at the airport. 30 people got off planes. A colonel in the, in the special forces of the Brazilian, sorry, Bolivian army, Hugo Conejo, turned up with a group of his soldiers. And uh, it, this transpired to be quite a big expedition. And we were all standing there, and, uh, and John Blashford Snell was the name of the explorer that I happened to meet at the time. He and Ranald Fiennes had had this organisation called SES, the Scientific Exploration Society, and they were leading an expedition into the Amazon. There you are. So I discovered that. And, and it was classic. Darren, we, um, we were all standing around and John suddenly claps his hands. He says, quiet, everyone. I've just got to shoot off to the embassy. Um, got a few permits to sort out. So I think we should all go back to the hotel and let's meet up again about one o'clock and we can go through you know, what we need to do for the day. Simon will um, tell you what to do. And I thought, great, there's another bloke called Simon here. So we were around in a circle <laughs> until we got around to the centre that I was the only one called Simon. I thought, I thought, what's that mean? I thought, well, actually, I know where his hotel is and I can arrange buses because I speak Spanish. So I did what was required. And it transpires, Wiley John, that a few, the reason he was in that bar was a few, I think a day or two before, his number two and Spanish speaker had fallen ill and, and wasn't around. And basically, he just needed someone to help. And, you know, happened to be me. So I, I ended up, you know, de facto, sort of, being his number two and 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 in and so, so i go and sit outside his tent and get instructions and then i sort of try to bring the team together and i mean I, not, not as i was an explorer i had no idea what i was doing but i looked the part my long beard and my long hair and and the like and it, it was i was five minutes ahead of everyone else and it was an amazing experience of three months of of, of, of living in remote you know bolivia um and i loved it and i really loved the connection with the local communities and we we did aid work while you're there it was very inspiring actually and he, then john then said look you know in a sense i know your life story now simon you're not doing anything else why don't you help me and join us and and lead expeditions and so i i spent the next four years taking scientists and aid workers away to remote parts of the world to do research and aid and took a couple of teams down into the gobi desert um team um up into the himalayas uh team down the blue nile um, from uh, Ethiopia to Sudan and back into the Amazon, actually. So just amazing. And, and really, it's so different to my previous life of, of connecting to our humanness and, and the similarities that we all have, albeit our, our, the colour of our skin may be different and uh, our religious practice is perhaps slightly different. Um, but there's the basic components of life are the same. And, and I learned that as I spent time in these extraordinary places. And then uh, a guy from 3i who, who owes money I'd lost, I'm sorry if you're listening from 3i, um, on my businesses, uh, I used to come back occasionally and give talks around leadership because, of course, I'd learned both the good stuff and, and, and when it went wrong. And he knew a, a lovely NGO, Right to Sight, Tackling Needless Blindness, who were looking for a new new chief exec and someone who was commercial but had lived remotely. And he said, you know, I think, I think you'd be the right man for that, Simon. I thought, I've got no idea what needless blindness is. You know, I've never done anything like this in my life. Anyway, I ended up becoming chief exec of Right to Sight. And, and, uh, and I was sent to southern India to go and learn my trade. And I, uh, by the board, who are mainly amazing doctors here in the UK and Ireland. And um, 
I, uh, I lived in hospitals in southern India and Tamil Nadu and just discovered what it means to help restore sight. Sadly, there are more people needlessly blind than have HIV in the world. It's so tragic because it's needless. I spent the next four and a half years um, having learnt my trade in southern India, persuading those amazing Indian doctors and nurses to come with me across Africa and other parts of India and Southeast Asia and develop eye care solutions, but in a sort of format that was not just only philanthropic. It was much more of an early social entrepreneur's model enterprise, which, of course, is much more prevalent now, but wasn't so much then. Um, and I learned that from the Indian uh, community I was working with, Aravind, where they had, uh, for 17 years, given everything for free and and had to raise money and, and get donations to maintain their, their incredible work with mi literally millions they, they served. And then one day, the, the founding doctor, Dr. Fekin Swami, who's sitting no longer with us, but you know, he sort of noticed that, that, that someone would come into one of their hospitals and the poor receptionist or doctor would be the one deciding who could afford what or not. And he said, this is crazy. So he just said, oh, you know, we're all able as humans to make our own decisions. So we should have one door that says free and one door that says paying. And, uh, and then we can choose, they can choose what they walk through and we'll trust them. And we won't tell them we don't believe them. And at the top of the hospital, they'll have exactly the same services because that's the way we do the eye care and they'll just go through a different system to get there. And uh, and they've been doing that ever since and making a, a surplus they can reinvest in the growth of that incredible work. And I, I was very struck by that as a brilliant way of helping. And so we took that model on. I think probably the same today, but broadly they were about 60, 40, 60% were going through the free door and 40% through the paying door. Um, very inspiring uh, and I loved it and at the end of it uh, after four and a half years of an emotional roller coaster because of course you can't imagine seeing people have their eyes restored you just there's no dry eye in the house it's just so emotive um, and, and and going to some quite challenging you know the, the board of rights site were very keen for us to go and try it in the hardest places so I was in Angola and Congo and Rwanda and really challenging environments but with full of beautiful amazing people just Sometimes the systems there weren't serving, as we know. Um, I knew I had to resign, Darren. I had to come home because it had been a long time I'd been walkabout and the family were all getting married, having kids, and my friends were too. And it was like, I, I kind of want that in my life. I'm now in my early 40s. If I don't do it soon, I never will. So I resigned, which was hard, but I think I knew the right thing to do. Um, I went back to say thank you to Indian doctors and nurses and in so doing they were talking about this man on a hill a five hours drive away um, from Madurai in where I in Tamil Nadu if anyone listeners know, knows where that is uh, and they said uh, you should go and chat to him he's an interesting bloke so I um, I got on a bus and I went there for a day there being a sort of zen campus really monastery is too big a word for it but uh, a zen uh, home uh, and this, the man I went to meet was a Zen master, Jesuit monk. So a very unusual man running these two beautiful philosophies, religions, however you want to describe it, in parallel. Unusual to be able to do that with permission. Uh, and I had a, a month of silence with him and a month of conversation and about eight hours of meditation a day. And it nearly killed me because if you've never meditated before, trust me, it's not easy to do it eight hours a day. But sitting for 25 minutes is incredibly painful. Um, and I, I, I was close to running away two or three times. 
uh, but I didn't. And I think that was a that was an amazing thing because I I came out of it with a practice that I've never lost. I'm not sure I'd have, I'd have had had this deep practice if I hadn't have been so fortunate to have had an extended period with him. Um, I'm also conscious I've been talking nonstop, and I should pause and let you jump in. No, it's wonderful. It's um, you don't need to let me jump in at all. Um, you can you can just you can just keep going. I'll just I'll just drop some little pebbles in just to say at some point do share the, the story of the metatarsal because it's one of my favourite stories. Um, and do do drop in and and do just you know for those that haven't joined that dot, I just want to join the dot that uh, you know when before Mo was even formed, Simon and I had met in 2010, and uh, he shared some of these stories. And the two doors is why why we do and have the framework and model we have in Mo is because of Simon, because of that story of the right to sight and the amazing work that they did to give back sight to so many people in India and Africa. So I just wanted to kind of acknowledge that because th that model and the 60-40 that you talk about is pretty much the same as we've found. Amazing. Uh, we reinvest, reinvest the money. We trust people ridiculously and not ridiculously. We just trust. Like It's just like we absolutely trust. And you, you were right and right to sight is right. It's a it's a beautiful framework. So uh, no, don't don't uh, don't don't halt yourself. Carry on with the wonderful story. I will, I will, I will. Um, well, the fifth metatarsal, for those you don't know, is the dewclaw, and uh, of of a of something. In this instance, it's a dewclaw of a Tarbosaurus batar, which is the same name as a Tyrannosaurus rex, and and. Uh, Yes, yes. I had, I've had, I had quite a few moments on my expeditions that I haven't touched on. One of them was Darren and is alluding to was in Mongolia, in the Gobi Desert, in the middle of nowhere. I mean, such an extraordinary place. No, we saw no living thing for seven days and no water. Can you imagine how bleak and yet beautiful, beautiful landscape that was. And I had a, I had the sort of the lead paleontologist from the University of Ulaanbaatar, which is the main city in Mongolia with me, Alt Angle Perle, and uh, a group of paleontologists, and we were looking for dinosaur fossils, and I was the expedition leader, and he, over one day, just began to explain to us how we would go about this process, and encourage us all to go off out of camp, we all had our walkie-talkies and our water, and to go and follow the dry riverbeds, and he said, there's a sort of layer here of 60 million years ago of fossils, and let's see what we can find. And uh, on the first day, I came over a, a sort of a little crop of stones and sand, and, and I saw lying on the surface some bones. And I thought, that's strange. And I thought, just a minute, I'm being set up here. They, they, they've laid out a load of bones, and they're all hiding behind those rocks, and they're going to just roar with laughter and wet themselves. So I was very, so I went round a circle, keeping the bones at distance to see where the footprints were. It would obviously mean that I was right, that it's a setup, except the only footprints there were mine. It's like, that's even weirder. So I went over, and there's a lot of bones there. So I got quite excited. I thought it must be a dead camel, you know, because there's, there's a lot of camels. Well, not a lot, but there are fewer camels in that part of the desert. So I radioed in, and Al Tangle turned up, and so did a bunch of the expeditioners, because they were all quite excited. And he got there, and he was like, oh, oh. And I said, what? What is it? Is it a camel? And he went, no. It's a, it's a dinosaur. I went, it's a dinosaur? It's a dinosaur? And he said, yeah. And I said, what is it? He goes, it's a, tar it's a leg of a Tarbosaurus batara, the T-Rex. 
I said, you're telling me this is a T-Rex leg. And he went, yeah. I said, what's it doing on the surface? He said, well, the sand has been blown off it. This is the layer I was telling you about. It's amazing. It's just here. Um, and he was quite sort of, oh, not one of those. We, we found a few of those. You don't, we don't need another one of those. I was like, we were all so excited. And then he looked down and then he found this. It's like the size of a cucumber, a small cucumber. It was broken in half in the middle. And he, and he said, he was looking incredibly excited. And I said, what that is that? And, and through the translator, he said, this is the fifth metastasis vestigial. This is the dew claw of a dinosaur, of a, of a T-Rex. And we've not found one in this complete form before. So we can take it back now and we can cast it. And then all the skeletons that you see in the museums around the world will have that added to the skeletal record. Of course, it has nothing to do with me. It'll be named, I'm sure it was named after our calendar Perley, but because I thought I found a dead camel. But there you are, it was amazing. Amazing. And in fact, Dan, you can't see, well, you can see this, but this old wallet that Ella, my lovely wife, is determined I let go of soon, he gave that to me whenever that was, 2007, maybe? Mm. That's his old, and it was his wallet, and he just said it was like his gift as a thank you. And so that is, that's his wallet, which I still have and I use every day when I think of him. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. No, that, well, thank you for them, like, sharing that story. Um, I just think it's beautiful. And the two doors as well, Simon, as you know, it's it's huge in, in Mo and has influenced it. So it's really lovely for people to hear where the genesis of, of that has come from. Because like so much when you're creating community, which we'll, we'll deep dive into sort of later on, because you, you are such an incredible community builder as well, is it's so important. And you never, as the person that maybe is the fire starter, as we called myself in Mo, it's never about you and it's never you. It's There's so many people that make up a community. And so part of what I'm loving about this series is I'm able to sort of acknowledge all those people that have helped to shape this little community that we've got here in Mo. Um, and that's that's a big part of it, that sense of the two doors. So I'm glad we've captured that story. So thank you. Pleasure, my friend. And then you've got into something else, you know, as well as the Mo podcast, which I'm starting now, I've just I've just done one for the Association for Coaching and, and I've done it on health and well-being, which is something that I've more and more important, I think, for, for all of us. Um, and one of the things that's really come out of that is something I want to pick up you've just shared there is 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 what's become quite apparent to me is is the importance of micro what i would call micro daily ripple habits or micro habits and you've just shared i think one that's really important uh, that's come from your zen master and uh, jesuit monk that you learned from which you've just said there is a deep practice so that's mindfulness so why don't you just share how that experience with him and that community has then gone on to shape your life and your daily habits because I'd love to mm. I'd love you to kind of expand that because I've always admired that you've you've got that practice and um, if I share with you um, a couple of other people talked about mindfulness on the AC podcast and they also talked about a, a paper where social psychologists put men and women in a room for 15 minutes and said to them you're just going to spend 15 minutes alone with your own thoughts okay in a very bare room with no stimulus no root windows or anything and then they put a little buzzer next to it and then they connected it to them and they said and if for any reason you'd like to you know experience an electric shock there you go there's a button and you can kind of experience an electric shock um fascinatingly 75 percent of the men press the button at least once in that 15 minutes rather than being with their own thoughts 
25% of the women, and one man pressed the button almost 400 times. So he was the outlier. So I just, I think, I just, that paper is incredible, and I'll send it to you afterwards. It's incredible. And, and it, for me, the reason I'm mentioning that is because for me, um, and it's also, I've just joined another dot, which I'm going to share in a second, is part of the stories of South South America we really share. I kind of traveled around there, and it's, it's wonderful to hear that. And then also, I think it's probably you've influenced that trip that I had to India when I went to I went to Osho's center and I went to try and learn about mindfulness because you'd said to me how incredible it had been for you. And I went there and tried to learn. I went for a week into the Osho center in uh, Pune, um, just outside of, um, uh, where is it, you know, but um, in, in, Cent- in um, I can't remember the name of the capital in India, but anyway. Delhi. Yeah. And, and it's, and it was so fascinating for me because I struggled massively with mindfulness that be just sitting and being, I enjoyed the evening events, but the thing that really worked for me is what they call dynamic meditation, what you and I would call dancing. And that, that really works for me. And it's so funny for me with my mindfulness practice, it's more about activity. So I'm doing mindful walks, you know, that's how I'm having to do it. I find that I have to be quite dynamic. So that paper you know, just to share it, the reason I'm sharing it is because it was for me, it was, it was reinforced actually. For me, that just sitting in stillness doesn't necessarily work for me. Whereas you've, you've built and you've honed your own practice. So share with us about your mindfulness and mindful practice that you use on a daily basis. I will. I will. And I'm happy to build on it as well, Darius. I've had some quite quite experiences about doorways in. I think there are, we have multiple doorways into this Um, and you've discovered yours and I've discovered mine. Um, yeah, well, listen, when I got to that monastery, um, I arrived in the middle of a silence, a four-day silence, and they were all, so no one spoke to me. I think they must have assumed that I understood what meditation was and mindfulness, because why else would I be there? Um, and uh, and so I, I, I didn't know what to do. And it's, yeah, it's, if you go somewhere and there's lots of people doing something and you don't know what to do, it's quite hard if they can't, they don't tell you. Uh and so, so it was really tough. I nearly left actually within a day about that bucket list. Anyway, I didn't. Um, but what I suppose happened for me, Darren, is I, I began to appreciate how noisy I was inside um, and how I had never taken pause to reflect. And I think one of the gifts I believe any practice gives us is the gift of reflection. I think we grow as human beings by being able to look within um, and, and uh, there's a lovely uh, Viktor Frankl, who's a famous author and, and a Holocaust survivor, you'll know. I'm sure others on this podcast you listen have heard of it. He wrote Man's Search for Meaning. And in there he has a phrase, in between stimulus and response there lies a gap, and in that gap is our growth and our freedom. And so for me, my practice has created a gap. And when I get a gap, it means that I don't fall foul of the immediacy of the next thing. But I have a choice. Now, it may be that I follow in a straight line because it's the place I want to be and the direction of travel I want to go in. But it's just as much the chance I could turn left or turn right or just not move. And in so doing, other things happen. Emergent. Life emerges in a whole different flavor and form. And that's what I've discovered by my practice. And my practice since I left that monastery is anywhere between... 15 minutes and 45 minutes a morning I sit and meditate because that's what works for me but I recognize that many do something similar but not the same in order to find that space that stillness inside of yourself and I also do but now have qigong 
which is an energy-based movement meditation, maybe more to your liking, Darren. And I do a thing called the Five Tibetans, which I discovered when I was up in the Himalayas. I happened to meet a bunch of monks in their 80s who looked about 40. I thought, yes, Smith, whatever they're doing, I need to know about. And uh, they they did the Five Tibetans every morning. And, and I've done it. Actually, I started that. I did that when I was um, leading the expedition. So I started that in, I've probably been doing that 20 years now, Darren, every day. Here's a, here's a, here's a funny one to the side. So Ella, my wife, you know, I get the piss taken out of me quite a lot by my family for meditating downstairs. My daughters think it's hysterical and my wife <laughs> laughs too. Although I think has her own form of practice now. She's now a doctor of Chinese medicine. So there you are. Says. Um, but uh, um, we were watching uh, Strictly uh, a few years ago when Bruce was still with us. And uh, he was uh, he was chatting away. Maybe it was, I think it was during a live show. And someone was asking him, how come he was so sprightly and young? as a 90, whatever he was, 90, was he, 89, 90? And he said, well, he wouldn't, you know, one of the reasons I put it down is I do something called the five Tibetans. And I, I looked at Ella, and Ella nearly fell off the chair. I went, there, wow. Brucey does it too. Um, I, I, no, I, I never had the chance to ask him how he learned the five Tibetans, but that really made me laugh. So, so I'm intrigued to ask, because I don't know, I've not come across it. So what is or are the five Tibetans? Five Tibetans are... Not to put you on the spot. No, no, no. So, so I do them every day. So, I, I, so I'm, I'm good on this. Uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I, I got, I'm a black belt in the five Tibetans. Uh, listen, it's... And actually, if you just Google five Tibetans, you'll see there's lots of literature now around it. Um, it's a sort of series of yoga moves, semi-quasi-yoga moves. Um, and I suggest if anyone does do it, they don't do the all 21 of each movement straight out, but they work up to it over a period of weeks. You know, maybe do it in batches of, 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 of seven, so three lots of seven or seven lots of three, depending on how fit you are. And there's, there's one where you're, you're spinning or there's one where you lie on your back and you lift your legs up and there's one where you sit and you bend your back, you're on your knees, you bend your back backwards and forward and you do a sort of a bridge, if you would know that, uh, in the yoga moves. And then you have a sort of downward dog uh, at the end. Uh, and you have some breathing in between. It takes no more than seven minutes to do the whole thing, and it basically it's like a it's an it's a starter of energy. It's, it, it it gets you in India and other parts of the world. They talk about chakra in your body. It's sort of the energy bodies that we have. It, 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 it yeah, you just get the engine moving. And I think these monks they said to me, yeah, so it starts you up, uh, it gives you energy, and it keeps you young. And I've been. You know, trying it ever since. In fact, me with two daughters under the age of four, and I'm 52, I need to stay young. So I'm going to keep going, <laughs> try and be Brucey at 90, do some dancing with the girls. Um, but that, so those, yeah, those are my practices, Qigong, and uh, which which is an amazing energy based uh, movement um, meditation, and my meditation. And uh, I think I'd speak to. I mean, I speak to many things. I've had some quite powerful energetic experiences in my body, which are rather extraordinary. Like my body moves now when I meditate. I, it's like I can't help it from the base of my spine all the way up the top of my head. It, it, in fact, I'm doing it now as I talk to you. It often happens. And I start to find air coming out of my mouth. It's very strange. Um, of course, air does come out of my mouth, but not when your head goes back. So there's, and I always think that it feels like I'm connecting into the mains of life is, is the experience I have. I mean, I'm not seeing colors or angels. I'm just, I'm just noticing I feel more connected. And I feel like I'm expanding from the inside out. There's a lovely, uh, lovely uh, man I work with, Thomas Hubel, an amazing chap. And Thomas always talks about complexity is simplicity in the right size vessel. The challenge we have today is that our vessel isn't big enough 
to cope with the complexity of life. And I feel for me what's been happening with my, my practice is I've been expanding my vessel to cope with the complexity that life throws at me and to be able to make it more simple so I can make better choices and different choices. And the um, other things I, I notice with the practice is the beauty of having it every day is that, of course, some days I stay in a fairly good state and I, quite, I stay quite present because it does bring you into state of presence. And as we all know, if you're present, you don't ruminate so much, you're not so busy in your mind and actually you can really enjoy what the day offers you rather than getting caught up in the past or fearful or thoughtful about the future. But with a practice that's daily, if I get down a path that's not serving, if I end up being frustrated or anxious or angry or just having a, you know, a low mood day, the next morning I reset. So the worst moment period is 24 hours. I've, and I can't think of since that time I, that I've had a, a longer than 24 hour bad period, which is amazing because I can tell you before that I would have described days, weeks and possibly even months where I was in a, a low place or a less good place or just a not connected place. I wasn't connected to myself or life. And so this practice has really brought me the amazing capacity to, to reboot myself and come back into me living now. And I think that's the biggest gift. I really do. Mm. Mm. I really do. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it, so it sort of brings us up to 2010 when you were just returning from right to sight and we, um, the world collided us as synchronicity does. And, uh, you know, we've started to indicate some of the th ways that you've shaped my life and also um, Mo, the Mo Foundation, which you're a trustee of and has, have been from the very beginning, which is incredible. Um, why don't you share? Because, I mean, there's a whole load of things I'd love to, I want to acknowledge within you. But one of the things that's always been, I've always admired in you and I've always gone, my goodness, wouldn't it be nice to be in that place? That there's a, as a man who's older than me, is is the humility that you've always demonstrated, um, and also the maturity to sort of talk about love and to talk about intimacy and emotions and to to not just talk about it, Simon, but to express it. I think that's you know just to say that I've never really said it to you, but it's always something I've I've kind of secretly admired in you and gone, how does he do that? Because it's it, it's there, it's there for all of us. Um, but for me, it was like, oh my goodness, to express my love to people that I don't really know is just, well, I'm just not sure about that. And it's, I wouldn't even say it's stiff upper lip because I just didn't have that background and education. So it's just, I don't know what it was. It was just, there's that, uh, I haven't been as willing as you've been and, and life has shaped you and the experience you've had have shaped you to show that vulnerability, which I really admire in you. Um, and I know it shapes your life right here and now. So why don't we sort of accelerate through to this 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 past 10 years you've gone to and to sort of bring us up to where we are right now, you know, 2021 and where where Simon's at, but without losing any of the material stories that you think are really important. But I just wanted to say that some of the things that I've maybe never said to you, actually, your your ability to love and be loving and to demonstrate love is is just something I find absolutely fascinating and incredible as a guy. Um, because it was almost like it's I've heard it described as the the feminine within or the new masculine and I don't really care you know it's I don't it's actually love actually it's just about being love and you and I uh, shared lots of things but one of the things I think we really share is about that loving leadership and love in action mm. 
and and you're somebody that for me just just epitomizes it and demonstrates it in in all of the ways that I see you live your life and you and I don't know each other on all levels but it's just you know on the levels that we do know each other and I always see you demonstrating that so how on earth have you has life created that in you or how has that genesis within you been born from within yourself how have you made that happen I think it started with a relationship with trust, going back to when I lost everything. Um, I'm not sure I ex exuded as much as what you experience now in my 20s and 30s. I think I, I was a decent bloke and you know and, and enjoyed having a good time and working hard, but I was I was far more fearful and stressed and anxious and probably less good company on occasions. So trust, I would say, underpins the journey, Darren. Learning to trust life such a big part of it i think for me in the last 10 years it's also about a sense of enoughness in who i am as a human being you know i think by life as experience i feel more enough as a person i'm not so well it's the combination of being concerned about what other people think and not being enough and not and being a, a bit of a fraud it's not that i i, I think i'm better than anyone I, I don't at all i've got many flaws many 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 people brilliant many more things than me but it's that it's that sense of feeling a bit enough inside myself so it's a sort of it's a very calm feeling inside my heart so it sits there and uh i think also life experience of, of meeting so many people in different situations you know the to, to fast forward the 10 years of now back to 2010 you know, broadly, I went and f found myself as part of an organization called Leaders Quest and, and ended up being one of the co-managing partners of it. And, and Leaders Quest is predicated around taking senior leaders away on experiential journeys to challenge the existing mindset, which is amazing. So we go to incredible parts of the world and we just meet people where they're at and we learn from their inspiring and extraordinary stories. And we try and make sense of it for ourselves and then those that we serve. When you keep having that type of experience, it's very humbling. You know, how dare any of us become arrogant, really, when we see that. It's just, and I think maybe Right to Sight did the same. It's so humbling to see sight being restored. So if you keep having that exposure, it really tunes into the energy of who you are. Um, so enoughness, trust, experience of common humanity, compassion, you know, seeing so many people you know, I'd come back to London and see my parents and dad would complain that the newspaper was delivered late and was cross. You know, and I'd just come back from somewhere where, you know, there was no running water. There was there was no electricity. You know, so your perspective was also very different. And I think when, you, mm. when you're able to shift perspective um, and get outside of yourself, that also helps hugely. Um, I think also, Darren, the movement of losing the businesses and going into the NGO space it created a, an acknowledgement of service in me I didn't know existed. And I think that's now part and parcel of how I'm here to serve and contribute. In fact, ironically, I'm now building a another for-profit vehicle because I think it's the right thing to do in this current climate, and I can share that in a minute. Um, but it's about how do we contribute and serve others? And if, if you know, I, I find when I approach any conversation meeting relationship i try and start in my heart i literally try and start in my heart and i also have in my voice in my head saying 
what is my contribution here? Not what can I get from this? What can I make from this? What can I earn from this? What can I contribute? Hmm. If you walk into any situation with a sense of contribution, it's amazing what flows. And, and you can only do that, really, if you, if you can exude, not exude, but just feel that sense of love because it, it's, that's what's contribution about. So those, those things have all had a part to play in, in I think, how I, I, I show up. Sometimes, not always. I'm sure my darling wife would say occasionally, that wasn't love. <laughs> Whatever it was, it wasn't love. Um, um, uh, and, and now having young kids, it's amazing. And you know that with the girls, you know, just it's incredible, isn't it, to have these little things that that just rely on you <laughs> and uh, and make you present. Uh, and uh, and I'm not always in love with them, but I do love them. <laughs> yeah, they they uh, they certainly are like little sticks of dynamite at times. Oh, yeah. It's brilliant. You know, great state changes, kids, aren't they? Oh yeah, yeah. It's the it's the best meditation. I mean, just being with your child, frankly, it's all you need. No, absolutely. And and what you've just shared there gives me an opportunity to just also acknowledge from one of our conversations out popped return on contribution instead of return on investment, which was was something that was just one of our conversations that wasn't recorded where it was just popped out and it was like, my goodness, absolutely, isn't it? Wouldn't it be wonderful if the world could move towards more return on contribution? So um so you you um you talked just now about the fact that you're you're now looking to kind of build a an organization, a profit organization. I would imagine with you, there's there's kind of purpose at the heart of it still. So let's um, let's kind of let's move into where where you're up to right now because um, I did do a bit of research before, and I have to say I did give a little squeal as I started to look at it because I hadn't looked at it. I'd seen that you were doing it, and I'd heard that you were building something just because you hear the jungle drums. But but uh, you know, then I went and had a purposeful look last week. I think last weekend actually. And uh, I was really excited by what I saw. I, I was really excited to see you step into your own leadership, to be visible about your leadership. Whilst also, as always with you, it's not about you. It's about how we can make a wider impact and a global impact and love in action and all those things. So bring us up to speed because I'm really fascinated to hear where, where, how you've, where this has come from and, and you know, where is it right now and where do you foresee that it could potentially go? Well, just after Havana, our eldest, our three and a half year old was born. So, you know, just over three years ago, I had a, a voice inside of me. I could hear it. It said, how does consciousness, energy and technology come together to create tipping points for change in the world? I was like, oh, I wonder what that is all about. And I am. Um, and it just kept sort of floating back in as I meditated. I just couldn't get rid of this thread. And after about six months of trying to either ignore it or scratch it, I realized I had to do something about it. And so I, I resigned from the managing partnership of Elkie, which was very hard because it's an amazing organization. And I think I imagine I'd be there all my life because I love what they do. In fact, I'm a part-time partner. So, you know, a teeny percentage of my time is still there offering sort of strategic help I can and occasionally being parachuted in to do something. Um, but I left. And actually, that was an interesting time. I didn't have any... Anything of what I, I didn't know what I'd do going forward. I didn't have any sense of how I'd earn. We had no savings. You know, we'd lived off pretty much every month that we got in. Of course, I'd lost all my money before. So poor Ella, the baby. Um, we just, we had our first house. We just got a big mortgage. And uh, she was like, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. I just know this is the right thing. And amazingly, someone, I'd, I, a trustee of Right to Sight, a wonderful man, Norman Crowley, um, phoned me up three weeks before I finally left LQ 
and and he said you just keep popping up simon in my mind i, I want to have a chat with you so i had a chat which ended up being a three-day walk and conversation in bath and at the end of it he, norman said look i really i really valued that it was helpful making sense of some challenges i'm trying to meet how about we um we do this together every month and you do it with my um my team as well and so i've spent the last two or three years walking with him and his senior team helping them as individuals grow and and so growing myself because of course we both we learn by doing um and i think darren that was the start of this what's now become sarsen this this organization i'm building because what i was noticing was the doorways into consciousness um as i spoke to these individuals these amazing individuals that work with norman tackling they're all very purposeful tackling climate change out in ireland um and i uh I got myself into a state where I wanted to get a group of people to come and try and explore it with me. So I spoke to about 33 other people in London or near London. who Some were chief execs of big businesses. Some were sort of activists, young, amazing activists. Others ran think tanks. You know, a real amazing array of my network. And over about six months, I said, well, you know, if I do this, would you be interested in coming? And they said, yes. And, I, and then I thought, I'd better do it. So I wrote to them all saying, well, I'm going to do it now. And I thought well, maybe, maybe six or seven will say they're up for it. I was asking for a, a day a month. And, you know, these are all very busy people. They're going to give me seven hours each month. That's a lot of time. Um, all of them, all 33 wrote back saying, I'm going to do it. It's like, wow, I better, I better take this seriously. I actually felt very inhibited inhibited because like oh my god i've now got to deliver <laughs> you know, this was just a, it was just an inquiry so i built this inquiry um and we all came together and i brought content around consciousness energy and technology into the room to play with from modern day mystics to eeg mapping of your alpha beta gamma and theta waves in your brain to divining with rods to i mean just the most amazing amazing uh, friend who's had three nobel peace prize nominations just an incredible selection of my community, trying to make sense of how we access our own growth and make sense of life in a different way. And then we had lockdown. And and those 33 others basically said to me, look, this is really interesting. We should make something of this. And so we we collectively formed Sarsen. And and I say collectively because it's not about any one of us. And there's no hierarchical structure. It's, it, it's a synarchy, if you know the word. And no, so I've never heard of it. Different. Synarchy, which is... Well, Holacracy, you've probably heard of. Oh, I know Holacracy. And you, yeah. you'll have heard of things. I'm sure you know Lelou's work and reinventing organisations. So the pre premise is that the, 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 the new path that we are treading in order to make the most of each skill, each other's skills is to do so in a, a more uh, holistic and circular way. And so it's all done in circles, but the sort of consent-based decision-making. So you're not just waiting for the committee to decide something for six months and going nowhere. It, it, it can be very, it can still move forward very quickly, but everyone's given the chance to actually contribute appropriately. So it's, a, and it feels, it, it feels the, the way that the world is moving and, and it creates a, a sort of sense of network and, and connection that doesn't always exist inside hierarchy. Um, so I'm starting with that from scratch, which is fascinating and challenging because lots of us aren't used to operating in that way. And, we also want it, and then of course, when we get there, we want someone to be in charge and tell us what to do and make decisions. And so it's like, no, no, you have a choice here too. Um, and you know that that thirty became fifty, became seventy. Um, we met every week uh, to carry on exploring, but we also began to build a, a business model and a business plan. 
I, I formed a not-for-profit. Sarsen, by the way, is the name of the stones that make up Stonehenge and Avebury. Um, and it feels appropriate. We do things in circles. It's about tapping into wisdom, uh, ancient as well as current. Um, and, you know, it got me... Um, got me into a position where in the autumn i think well two things happened the first thing was we 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 with the old lq hat on we had uh we were supporting the future stewards program which was called countdown in conjunction with chris anderson's ted ted and so ted and future stewards have come together to create this amazing program called countdown trying to bring awareness to the climate challenge and, and crisis in the world and using you know ted which is so much about you know, spreading good ideas. This is actually a very subject-specific moment, very unusual for them. And so 500 organizations did TEDx's, and I thought, okay, Sarsen can do a TEDx, and we'll do one around consciousness and, and climate change. Because for me, if we want to change something outside, we need to change within first. And so we did a wonderful four speakers. And mate, James Thornton, who runs Client Earth, was one of my an incredible man, doing amazing work. You know, probably the most important man in the world no one's ever heard of. An incredible man. Um, suing the arse off businesses and governments to, to look after our planet and, and a group of other fabulous friends. Um, and that was a spark, I think, that got me thinking, this is not just for a few people, this is for many people. And actually, I, I realise now that that's when I looked out and thought, actually, this is something that we ought to try and bring to many millions of people um, in, in humility and uh, in, in the realisation that it won't be easy, but actually it's available for all of us. And so we're building this fabulous organization now, a movement organization, which, which is about doorways into consciousness. So imagine you know, a platform um, and the, the commercial aspect of this is, is that I'm building a, a sort of back-end database around consciousness that will be available as a, as a public good um, for universities and research bodies to access alongside our own teams and try and make more sense of the whole consciousness conversation and make it more mainstream more approachable applicable permissible which feels terribly important and then i'm building a commercial vehicle alongside that has a wrapper around that and a platform and the platform will will uh, uh called light and the platform will be there to help people go on their own journeys and we will provide a variety of content incredible curated content so we can find our own doorways in and as we find our doorways in so we move through and choose the paths we want to tread and try and make it available through communities to many millions of people and i'm i'm building it now and it's gathering momentum and i'm you know i'm finding investors and technology partners and communities and listening on listening to this who feels drawn to it please join because it's something that i can i can feel I can feel the push from behind and the pull from in front, and it's just expanding out. Well, that's wonderful. So, you know, when you the vision that you you hold and the, and the community hold, um, so just just bring that to life a bit more. Hundreds of millions, I've no doubt you'll get there. <laughs> no doubt. Um, uh, so, so how? So, from a practical perspective, what what do you envisage when you talk about there's this platform? Well, imagine imagine you're. Imagine you find us because you've been referred to us by a friend who just said, this was very helpful. Or your community's partnered and said, look, we, we sort of think this is something that we you would enjoy. Uh, or well, we're all storytellers inside Sarsen. So I can see that, that we're going to have quite an interesting media presence where we tell stories that help people find us. 
Um, but you're, you found us, you've arrived, and it's either through an app on your phone, it's through your web browser, or even through the television. Um, and you would, we would curate a journey for you initially for four or six weeks, where you would spend a bit of time each day just doing something that we invite you to try. So when you talked about the practice, it would be a multiple number of practices that you could try, some of which would be you know, like meditation and mindfulness and yoga, but others completely different gardening and being in nature and dance and baking. I mean, there's just so many ways of, of, of doing this. Um, and the, in that four to six week process, you come out of it thinking, gosh, that was really helpful. I notice that I feel a bit different. I think there's a feel, a felt sense. Uh, I, uh, I had a couple of experiences that were unusual. I want to do a bit more of those. So actually now I'm going to go through one of those doorways and do a bit more of that breath work that, that they introduced me to. I want to do that for two or three months and I'll do it. That'll be my practice for the next two. And I'll try something. Um, and so you'll do that. And then actually, of course, at the moment, because of COVID, we'll all be doing this online. But the whole premise is that this is not just about doing things uh, online. That as Where possible, it'll be done face to face so that it'll be accessible both on and offline. And I think what happens then is if if that journey is appealing and if you feel held and safe and learning and there's a sort of community of others doing the same, then you can grow with that. And the community aspect is therefore very important. It holds us all to learn together. And ultimately, we get the other side of that, which is people saying, gosh, I want to do more of this. And so they continue on. So I see this being something that people can do over an extended period of time. Mm. And and the the journey that you anticipate um, as much as you can, because it sounds very experiential and, and on your on your terms. What's your wish for it or your hope for it in terms of when we've talked a bit, sort of the entrance to this partially was mindfulness and some of your own experiences. But it's also, you know, one of the things I know about you is you you really do give a damn about the planet and this home that we have and, and how we actually right now, we don't leave it to future generations, our generation right now, we have responsibility. We have a, a, an accountability that we need to look in the mirror and see. And we need to be better stewards of this beautiful planet, this heaven on earth, quite frankly, that, that we're privileged to be here. And to be here and to be aware and conscious, and for me, consciousness is aware of being aware. And there's multiple other levels that people have and, and you know, always want to hear other people's perspectives. What's, what's your hope and the community's hope that we can start to create? What are some of the conversations and some of the contributions, Simon, that you envisage? Thanks, Darren. Um, I, I, I often, at least to myself, say that for me, consciousness is the totality of our lived experience, five senses and beyond. And so with that question in mind and with that framing, you know, I, I, would, I would hope that this expands people in their perspective and lived experience. And the reason why I think that's important is, A, because of the the challenges that so many of us are having to meet at the moment, which we can move through, you know, the anxieties, the fears, the worries. But in part, that's because we are, our systems are breaking down. We, if you look more broadly, we know our systems are breaking down, whether it's political, commercial, climate, and the like. Um, and we need to lay down new organ. We need to lay down the ground, the groundwork for new organising systems that are going to break through. But they're only going to break through at the edges of life. They never break through in the centre. And they're going to break through when people begin, when we individually begin to open up to the um, opportunity of that. And so for me, what, what is, why am I doing this? I think Sarsen is one of hopefully many 
movements, organizations, groups that are coming together in their own way around the world that say, look, we have to, we have to take responsibility uh, for ourselves and each other. There are other pathways available. We can create that opportunity for people and in so doing, different action will come from it. And it's not for me to say what that action is. It, it, mm. It's not my, I don't have permission for that, but I have permission to try and help people create the space for new choices that lead into new action, which is appropriate and needed. And that's when I see the breakthrough happening as the green shoots begin to grow. So we're, we're just busy working the soil. That's, I suppose, what we're doing is working the soil you know, laying the groundwork and if we can re work with enough people then that that will look, be so fertile that the new systems will begin to emerge which are more serving of all of us mm -hmm. which is what we're crying out for beautiful beautiful it's so interesting i think you and i had a conversation last year when i, I was um i was having a, a thoroughly interesting time mentally and psychologically and um it, it, it was really interesting but sort of one of the gifts from that moment was was what what I, I experienced was high fidelity systems. We're moving to this space of high fidelity systems where there's this huge interconnectedness of communities and people that all start to awaken and go, actually, we really do, you know, we need to, to be much more mindful and meaningful in the way that we're looking after this planet. And, and then the rise of the feminine, not female, the rise of the feminine the, from ego to ecosystems, you know, some of the sort of, because the way I, I kind of tap into things, Simon's is through writing is through walking and running, but it's writing. And I, it's so amazing. Like you, you were sharing um, earlier is the things that just come flowing through that I never share with anyone really. I mean, sometimes they manifest in Mo and in other things, um, but I re that really resonates with me, as you as you were no 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 doubt surprised. So Sarson, so people should check out it's sarson.com, isn't it? That's that's where people can find you. Yeah, and and uh, you know I would say we're sort of prototyping at the moment, and we're going to be doing some testing of our wonderful content in the next few weeks and months. Uh, and the the actual platform won't go live for probably a year because it takes so much time to develop these things. Mm. But there's lots of scope to get people involved now and to help and support. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's it's an amazing journey, Aaron. Mm. It's emergent. It's really, it's, I tell you what, one of the things I'm having to work with, which is fascinating, is, the, uh, is, is, is to allow something to emerge with patience and yet still be moving forward and acting. And it's a very beautiful dance. Mm. Um, the, 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 there's an expression "wu wei," which means effortless action. I am by no way, no no means, uh, living a wu wei existence. But I do occasionally think, wouldn't it be amazing to have that effortless action? Because uh, it's what's required. Absolutely, no, that's beautiful. And and just in terms of that, one of the things that I've learned through community is that it, often you need that coalescing. Um, group of contributors you know which you've been and we've been party to in, in sort of from the Mo perspective and you're attracting those people so who are who are some of the people what are some of the conscious skills and things that you need right now so do you have an invitation to people that maybe have got some talents that they'd love to connect into you and connect into Sarsen oh wonderful yeah thanks Dan well we we um you know we're, we're looking to build out our, our tech so we need to have people who who understand how to how to craft and develop and design and build the right level of technical infrastructure that supports this? Um, 
we also need to be able to help it be beautiful. You know, the, the UX, UI, the way that people go on this journey is going to be very important. Then there's some intelligent uh, algorithms that we want to work with for good. <laughs> you know, we, we really, this is uh, something we believe is possible so we can help, you know, rather than overwhelming people when they arrive on the platform, we need them to feel comfortable and safe and, and also help create a pathway that we can encourage them to move down initially and then co-learn and it's co-creation from then. So people who've got those skills, um, you know, we, we, we're determined to build a, a sort of media profile, um, which, which is all area, all aspects of media from social media and beyond as to how we, as we craft and tell these stories that help others identify with them enough to say, I want to go on that journey myself. So storytellers and people who have expertise in each of those spaces would be very well received. Um, and then communities, you know, ultimately, uh, this is only going to really work if it, if it quite like Mo, just get, we let it go and out it goes into the world. Uh, and it's like we can't control it. And we need to find the right communities who want to embrace it and support it and at least try it. And then it has a life of its own, as you know. So I would say those are the three fundamental aspects of, 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 of need at the moment. Mm, they're wonderful. And I'm, afterwards, I've got a few people that I think will definitely point it in their way and see if it's of interest because they've got the right sort of skill sets and knowledge and wisdom. Uh, I love it, Simon. Wonderful. And it's so wonderful to hear, hear it sort of being expressed and coming to life. And, uh, you know, anything we can do to support it, then, of course, we will. Amazing. Um, just a couple more minutes, because I'm conscious you've got another meeting coming up soon. And so I just wanted to honour that. We, you know, this is this is Mo Foundation, and, and, and I'm so blessed and I love the fact that you're part of Mo and Shape Mo. And uh, you're a, one of those invisible hands that we've got quite a lot of in Mo. Uh, and it's one of the things that, you know, I love about what Mo is and what it what it's got. So what do you see for Mo and, and any message do you want to share with anyone in Mo? I think you, you did a video a couple of years ago that just people love watching. Um, so any sort of gifts or thoughts that you'd love to share with the Mo community? Well, the first thought is keep going. It's such an inspiring story, Mo. And I love tuning in. And, and you know, when we were lucky enough to get together, Darren, and, and have the conferences and, and, and see and listen to people on stage, just amazing, heart-lifting. Um, and and I, I, what's so incredible is that this is happening without anyone being told to do it. It's just it's just a felt sense and a connection. Mm. And I think that's really healthy and unusual. So I'd say to the community, let's keep honoring that and, 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 and sort of feeding that and giving that energy and trusting it to emerge in the appropriate way. Um, yeah, I, I, I've always, I did the Mo course right back in the day when we, Darren and I first got together. So fundamentally, you know, the skills that I learned there with James, who was leading my my course. I, I'm sure I forgot many, sorry, James, but some I know I've held on to. Uh, and I know how valuable they are. And I just, if that, if I could wave a magic wand, I give everyone five days of mo coaching and a meditation or some, day, some daily practice. I think those two equip us for an incredible life, just on its own, frankly. Mm. Um, so keep doing the work because it's it's so valuable. And then obviously help others by, by sharing it with them as we are. Um, and I think that was the last thing to say is, is uh, 
the sort of responsibility that comes with this that, that I think um, I'm finding more and more that, that responsibility doesn't need to be heavyweight. It can be a gift, um, uh, and it's and it's it's very energizing when we when we share share it and bring it out into the world. And so, and, and not to second guess yourself or question whether you're enough or whether this is the right thing for people to hear because all I promise is the right people will hear whatever they need to hear and so be confident to, to speak to Mo and to and to live it because in the living of it it, it comes alive and uh, and we've seen that in the incredible journey Mo's been on in the last few years. Wonderful well I've uh, it's been wonderful it's been wonderful to actually spends the precious time that we do get to spend with each other and it's been even more special on this occasion because we've recorded it which we've never done and now we've we're going to be able to share some of your you know wonderful stories with other people not just now part of my love of podcasting as has emerged over the last six or eight weeks is just actually the the ripple effect this can have across generations that's that's something that i've sort of fallen into and as always I think with both of us, there's that sense of legacy and uh, purpose. And um, that's what I'm loving about this is actually we can capture some of these wonderful conversations and uh, stories and they can be shared with people going forward, not least our own children, which is always a precious gift. Oh, I hadn't thought about that. It's lovely. Hi, girls. Love you both. <laughs> you listen to Hi, guys. <laughs> Hi guys, as uh, Sienna says to her sisters, but hi, go, hi girls and, as well. You're yeah. right. Havana runs in always and goes, guys, it's like, <laughs> who are you talking to? It's so funny. Uh, li- listen, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for your time today, Simon. Thank you so much. Thank you too. Uh, I loved you all. And, uh, and see you soon, Dan. Take care. Now, this is a message for anybody who thinks that life coaching might be the right calling for you, but you're not sure how to attract new clients. So on the 17th of April, we will be having our next Mo Digital Academy. Keely Vuong White, the founder of Kia Ora Coaching, is going to be talking to us about how to attract clients as a new life coach, a 90 minute long introduction to marketing. Now, she's had a fantastic life and has spent 15 years in international corporate marketing and has also learned a thing or two about setting up a business and she's also done her coaching with the Mo Foundation so she's going to be running a fantastic workshop we hope to see you there if you're interested and you'd like to register then please find more information on our website that's mofoundation.com forward slash calendar thanks so much and we will see you there